one of the first jobs that I ever had, and the only time that I have willingly been associated with being a gator, was when I worked for the University of Florida Experiment Station in Quincy, Florida. It was hard, grueling work at times. We'd pick tomatoes, we'd uh, harvest wheat by hand with sickles out in the hot sun, the hot Florida sun. But to me and my friends, we had a lot of fun doing it. We made the most of it. But one thing I am not so proud of during this time is that when we would take all the crops back to the warehouse to be sorted, our boss would go to different stations checking on them and we would figure out any way possible that we could to take a break. But we just wanted to avoid working after being out in those fields. We even built a secret fort behind stacks of tomato boxes where you could catch a quick nap. And it was in the darkest, coolest part of this warehouse. It was a beautiful thing to go catch a nap in this secret fort we made. So one of us would watch while others took a break and we had a system that alerted us to when the boss was coming. And when the boss would come, we did a really good job of looking busy. We'd prepare our stations and have things all set up so that we could just jump in our seat and, and be sorting these bags. The system went really well for a while until one of my friends on his last day at this job, he decided that he would make a video. He decided he would film all the people that we had gotten to know uh, while working there. And he went around, he filmed all the places we worked. And he was showing me and a few other of my friends uh, footage that he had taken. And when the tomato box nap, secret nap fort was on the screen, we, we all laughed. And to the sound of our laughter, that's when our boss said, hey, what are y'all laughing at? Let me see. And at this moment, all of our laughter was gone. My buddy tried to fast forward clumsily. He tried to turn it off, but it was too late. God's word reigns true. What is done in the darkness will be brought to the light. Everything that we had hid that summer was on video for our boss to see. And the craziest part is it was by our own doing that he saw this. We gave him video footage. We did our best to play it off. But just the fact that this secret fort existed was enough evidence against us. My boss, his name is Lloyd. He was not happy. But thankfully, we were able to recover. And that was the, the day the tomato box secret nap fort was disassembled and was no more. Today we're going to see and hear in the Gospel of Luke an account of Jesus telling a parable to his disciples. He's telling a parable about servants who are left in charge while their master goes away. The faithful servants who did their job, who fulfilled their master's will, will they are the ones that are rewarded while the unfaithful servants would receive punishment. The stakes that God calls us to are much higher. When the master we are to answer to is God himself. In Jesus' context for us as servants, it's more than just a job. It's more than just 40 hours a week and what we do between the hours of 9 to 5. Jesus' measure for these servants is faithfulness in all of their life. With their entire life, did they live to please themselves or to please their master? This same question is posed to us today. What did we do with the life 
and the opportunities that God has so graciously bestowed upon us. When the master shows up, just like my unfaithfulness was revealed to my boss, there will be no hiding it. There will be no cover-up. It will be evident who the faithful and the unfaithful servants are. Where will we be when our master returns? Let's pray that we would be faithful. God, (laughs) we come before you in need of you. (laughs) I feel my weakness this morning. I see my need for you. Lord, I pray that we would all see our need for you. God, and as we contemplate these hard things, these fiery words of judgment, what you came to do to fulfill your mission on this earth, Lord, I pray that our hearts will be stirred to love you more, to know you more, to live all of this life in faithful service to to our true king. Help me, God. Help us. Help us to see. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your glories. In your name we pray. Amen. So we are convicted as a church that one of the best things that we could possibly give ourselves to is a thing called expositional preaching. This type of preaching, what it really tries to do is it goes book by book through the Bible. And letting the Bible kind of sets the course for our preaching. This means we we seek to uphold God's word in its totality. Letting the point of the message of scripture be the point of the sermon. And not the other way around. And this lets God's word be our guide instead of man's preference. Doesn't mean that we can't have a good topical series every once in a while, but our steady diet is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through God's inspired word. And the beauty of this is that if we're faithful to this, we receive the whole counsel of God. We don't skip over hard to understand passages or, or things that we don't like, we get all of it. Jesus' words that we will focus on today, they are not ones that we hear often. They may challenge our preconceived notions of who Jesus is. They may be difficult for us to hear, but they are the truth. So I encourage you to listen up, lean in, and ponder these words of Jesus this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 59. I encourage you to follow along with me in your Bibles. And we'll be considering the call that we must answer as we anticipate the Master's return. There will be one main call that we'll be considering this morning that we'll spend the majority of our time, and that's going to be what Christina just read, verses 35 through 48. We must be prepared for our master's return. But we're also going to see what a life of preparation looks like in the following passages. First, that we should anticipate division as we live faithfully in verses 49 through 53. Second, that we should be aware and know the times in which we live in verses 54 through 56. And lastly, we should settle our accounts while we still can in verses 57 through 59. Anticipating division, be aware and know the times in which we live and settling our accounts while we can. Last week we heard Jesus encourage and rebuke his disciples in their faith. He knew that the anxieties of life would be prone to overtake them and and become their focus. And and all of a sudden, they would be worried instead of trusting in God's gracious provision for them. 
Now he speaks to his disciples, telling them how they should live on earth, anticipating his return. Jesus says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. To be dressed for action in this time meant taking the long flowing garments and robes that was typical for them to wear and folding them up around their legs and waist. And what, this is what's meant by the phrase you may have heard, gird your loins. They'd hike up their robes, they'd put on a large belt, and then they'd tuck their robes into this belt. And this would allow their legs to move unrestricted. Imagine how hard it would be to run in full speed in a long robe, right? But with them tucked in, there'd be no threat of tripping. They'd be prepared to exit quickly. Faithful servants were to keep their lamps burning, essentially leaving the lights on, anticipating the master's return. In this analogy, the master is coming back from a feast, and the servants were to be ready when the master arrived to open the door. They would be ready to light the way. They would be ready as any faithful servant should be to greet their master. And of those faithful servants, Jesus says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. This blessing of the master, if we take a few moments to consider it, is unbelievable. When he returns and finds those faithfully serving, Jesus says the master will then take on the role of the servant and the servant the role of the master. Nothing like this would ever be expected to take place in the dynamics of the servant-master relationship. But Jesus says their roles will be reversed. His faithful servants would recline at his table and his master would serve them. The second or third watch that we see in verse 38, this refers to just the division of time. The, the Romans would split the nighttime into four different watches. The Jews would split it into three different watches. And the second watch was the three hours leading up to midnight. So the third watch would be the next three hours after midnight. This is the night shift. It would be easy to fall asleep. This would be uh, the third shift that where you'd be prone to throw back, throw back an energy drink just to keep going. But those faithful servants that were awake when their master came back at this hour, they are the ones that will be blessed. Jesus talks about the master and the unpredictability of time, saying that the master never would have left if he knew what time the thief was coming. If he knew when his house would be broken into. And it's verse 40 where he makes his point. He gives us the reason for this analogy of the master and the servant. He says, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus is telling this story to prepare his followers. Jesus, and he uses this glorious Son of Man title that he loves for himself. We've seen from Daniel 7, this one that would have dominion over all, this long-awaited prophesied Messiah is coming at an hour no one expects. No one knows when. Jesus came to earth as a baby. It's the reason we celebrate Christmas. But there will be a second coming of Jesus. The kingdom of God has broken out with his arrival on earth. 
but it will be finalized upon his return. No matter what false prophets or misguided end times enthusiasts may say, here Jesus himself says his return cannot be calculated or deciphered in advance. No one knows the time. Jesus is coming back. This is a reality. He'll come back to consummate his kingdom. He'll come back in redemption and in judgment. He is the master of the house. He is God himself. All creation is his. Every human body and soul was made for him, for his purposes, by him, for his purposes. Anything we have, everything we've been given, all of it is his and for his glory. And we're the servants of the house. We're the stewards of his creation. We don't own it, but we've been called to be faithful caretakers in our master's absence. Jesus gives us these warnings because he knows us. He cares for us. He knows we may be prone to get tired of waiting. He knows we can get distracted. We can get anxious. We can be hypocritical. We can live for other things. But he wants us to never forget the master is coming back. So Peter speaks up on behalf of the disciples with a clarifying question. Verse 41 says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Applied to the disciples or everyone. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Jesus, as he often does, he doesn't answer him directly or exactly the way he would want. From his question that Jesus asked, we can deduce that it is for all. All who walk the earth, all who have been given life, all of us, will give an account for our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. And those who are found faithful, we see these immense blessings from the master. Verse 43, blessed is the servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Jesus so far has spoken of the faithful servants, the servant and the manager who were, were prepared for their master's return, but He's about to switch gears. Verse 45, he speaks to the consequences of the unfaithful. But if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at the hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You will not find these words on any top ten inspirational Jesus quotes list. This passage is one of the harshest recorded uh, condemnations of Jesus. The servant waits and waits and waits, and it appears as if the master is never coming back. And so the unfaithful servant begins to treat others as though he rules over them. 
He begins to treat people like objects and abuse them for his own ends. He begins to indulge himself and please himself and eat and drink and get drunk of all his master's provision. He begins to live as if there is no master and that he will never return. But on a day that he does not expect, the master will return. The master will cut him into pieces for his evilness. And what should impact us about this text is that Jesus isn't primarily talking to atheists or, or pagans who are you know, worshiping other gods outside the church as we so easily kind of put these application points towards. He's talking about people inside his church. He's talking about you and me. Where is his stewardship to be higher than his church? When the judgment of God comes, it usually begins with the house of God. It's been particularly sobering to reflect on this passage as a pastor. Knowing every pastor has been given a responsibility as an under-shepherd, under the authority of Christ, under the authority of his word, to keep watch over the souls that God gives them to care for. And we're to do this, we see in Hebrews, as one who will one day give an account for those in their care. Reflecting on passages like these, I begin to understand why past mentors of mine, they would pray, they would literally pray that they would have small churches so that they could care for all the flock, knowing that one day they would give an account before the, the chief shepherd. Those endowed with positions of authority and leadership in Jesus' mission in church are held to a higher standard. And this is why James tells us, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Every leader, every pastor who's been given this office as a steward will be judged on how they cared for his people. Every abuser, every charlatan, everyone who used the Lord's church to gratify their worldly desires, these are the servants who will be cut to pieces when their master returns. The servant does not simply lose his reward. His lack of faithfulness demonstrates that he did not belong to the master's people at all. This judgment, it may start with its leaders, but it's not for them alone. All of humanity can be divided into two groups, those anticipating the return of the master and those who are not. All of this graphic imagery is meant to point us to the final judgment, to a fate much worse than being chopped up, the reality of an internal hell in which we will all suffer apart from Christ. The outer darkness, in that place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth like we can never imagine. This judgment and eternal punishment, even though it's hard to speak of, this is what awaits those unfaithful. In our modern sensibilities, we can be prone to minimize hell, to dismiss it as barbaric and out of date. There may be no more difficult doctrine to consider than the realities of hell. But almost everything we know about hell in the New Testament did not come from the mouth of his apostles. It came directly from Jesus himself. Pastor R.C. Sproul speculates on why this is the case. He says, I'm guessing that God knew we wouldn't accept that doctrine from anyone less than Jesus. Even from his lips, people still find it odious. 
Jesus warned us just a few weeks ago to not fear those that can kill the body, but to fear him who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell. We're not to have anxiety. We're not to fear for the future. We're not even to fear death. But to fear hell, that is appropriate. Hell is more terrible than we can imagine, friends. His common grace, his freedom and mercy that you have right now, that you're not even aware of, all of it is gone. To be cut off from the grace of God from all of eternity. It's a weighty thing to consider. In these different punishments doled out, we come across something I don't think we most of us think about often. I know I didn't. There will be different levels of punishment in hell according to our offenses. Those who knew the master's wishes and were not faithful, they will not be chopped up but receive a severe beating. While those who didn't know the master's will but disobeyed, they will receive a lighter beating. If you're anything like me, my tendency is to go to this one who didn't know the master's will and say, hey, they are innocent. How's it fair for them to get punished? This is where we have to lean on the Bible and not our fickle hearts as much as we may not want to believe it. This idea of an innocent person somewhere, it just does not exist. There is no innocent person. This is the reason why when we discover new civilizations, because of our God-given conscience, because of the creation that screams his glory, they, they have some understanding of a higher power. They have an understanding of worship, and they have some mechanism, as wretched as it may be, to atone for their sins. God's word speaks with striking clarity. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So instead of seeing the cruelty of God in these punishments, what we actually see is God's perfect sense of justice. Their suffering in hell will not be as severe those outside of the church that don't have the gift of hearing the word, that have never been confronted with the gospel, they will receive a lesser punishment than those who sit in pews week after week, soaking up his graces and rejecting it. Knowing truth, hearing the master's will, it, it comes with a responsibility, a responsibility to prepare a responsibility to be faithful in his absence. And I ask you, servants of Christ, what do you need to do to get ready? Where are you not living in accordance with your master's will? What would you change today if you knew the Lord was returning tomorrow? Judgment is coming. There is a day of reckoning coming. The king is returning and he will not be mocked. And that will either be a glorious day of delight for us or it will be a day of weeping and soul-crushing regret. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. To know the glories of redemption and grace of his gospel, can we be given anything more? Brothers and sisters, much has been given to you, so much. Much is demanded of you. 
If we want to know what the Lord requires of us, we simply need to reflect on what he has bestowed upon us. And while the severity of judgment, this should weigh heavy on our hearts, I don't want us to lose sight of the master is. Verse 37. Blessed are those servants who find, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. In this verse, we see such a beautiful glimpse of the gospel. And this situation that confounds this master-servant relationship that's so unbelievable, the good news of the gospel is even better than this situation. The reality is, is that we all abuse what we've been given. The reality is, is we've all acted as our own master. We treat others poorly. We fill ourselves with excesses, entertainment, and have many thoughts about our success without consideration of the one who gave us this life. Grace is giving you something that you don't deserve. And mercy is holding back something from you that you do deserve. And in Jesus, we have both. We deserve to be cut up and cast out with the unfaithful. Yet he is the faithful one who comes and lets us recline at his table. He is the one that comes to serve us. He is the one who would be pierced and cut for our sins. Jesus became a slave so that we could sit at our master's table. What I don't want to do is minimize the call to be prepared that we need to take very seriously in light of his grace and forgiveness. Often I see the grace and forgiveness and I'm so prone to run to it and just not prepare. Romans tells us, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness is shown to us so that we can live in obedience, so that we can turn from our sins, so that we can walk in repentance. To understand this rightly, we need to know that in our hearts, what one pastor has noted is true, that grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Write that down. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. This is where we can easily get it wrong. God calls you to effort, not to earn. Nothing we can do can earn us a seat at the table. In our best efforts, we are the unfaithful servants. Even the Pharisees, the most religious folk who tried to uphold every law, every religious rule, they were the hypocrites that Jesus went after. They were clean on the outside, but dirty within. Nothing can make you or I clean apart from the redemptive work of Christ who takes on your sin who takes on the wrath of God for you and then graciously and abundantly gives you his righteousness. Let that grace poured out motivate you to effort. If you're a Christian, this effort is not so that you can be right with God, but just to live out what he has called us to, to be the faithful servant. Beloved, we should look back at the cross often, but we're not primarily meant to 
live looking backward. Jesus gives us these truths so that we can look forward to the future promises that should motivate and inspire our very present obedience. How amazing is it that all the redeemed will sit at their master's table? This feast points us to the marriage supper of the Lamb when we will sit with him. Adopted as children, we read in Ephesians 1, that we've obtained an inheritance. Jesus says again, blessed is that servant who the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. The faithful servant will not only sit at his table, he'll set him over all his possessions. Romans 8 we read, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. In heaven, we will be by our master's side, working, laboring as a fellow heir. He will set us over his possessions, abundant graces that we cannot begin to fathom. Let these future realities motivate you to present obedience. Let that excite your soul. That for all those in Christ, we will feast at his table. We'll work by his side as co-heirs in redemption. We can't earn our way. He has done that, but there is a reward to be had. As we think about this prepared life, next we're going to see that we should, as we live faithfully, we should anticipate division. Jesus says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it would already be kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. In Luke, we've talked so far about several reasons that Jesus has come to earth to restore the sight of the blind, to, to liberate the captives. But if, you know, if I were to ask just a general straw poll, why did Jesus come to earth? I doubt many of us would say that he came to cast fire on the earth. And that he wished it was already kindled. John the Baptist, we saw last year when he spoke of Jesus in Luke 3, he said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than me is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This baptism of fire is the coming judgment that Christ will bring. Fire is often the symbol of judgment. And notice Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. How are we to make sense of this? Jesus has already been baptized. Why does he need to be baptized again? He's not speaking of his baptism. He's speaking of the cross. And his distress is great until the mission that he has come for is to be accomplished. Jesus is laser focused. He is the faithful servant through and through. He is the servant we can never be. And yet he is the servant that we can rest and trust in. He is the suffering servant who makes us clean. He's not anxious as we would be. But he is aware that the wrath of God, this baptism of fire that he speaks of, is to be poured out on him. And he is eager to see it come to pass. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? 
No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Once again, this is not the Jesus we hear of often. We hear far more often, he's the prince of peace. How, how could he come to divide? Yes, he came to bring harmony. He came to bring peace where only turmoil and chaos and confusion exist. But he also came to bring division. And Jesus picking up these words of family relations from Micah 7.6 lets us know that families will be divided over what he has come to do. His pivotal mission will divide the very closest human relationships. I said earlier, there are two types of people, those who are anticipating his return and those who do not. We should not be surprised when division comes along as we are living faithfully. Not division that we cause and that we seek. The gospel is offensive enough. Just telling others that you are a sinner in need of a savior is enough. We read in 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We should not be surprised when division comes. If families are in their gift, for many of the most precious things that we know, but they are not ultimate. Christ must be our first allegiance. He must be first in our hearts. Weirdly, so much of my Christian life, I remember growing up and just being confused a lot of times about what a Christian is. Because I would read these things in Scripture, and then I would see Christians around me, and I would just go, kind of throw my hands up. But I remember one time in college, I came across the counterpart of this passage in Matthew 10, where Jesus says, I came to bring not peace, but a sword. And this weirdly judgment, dividing, divisive passage, it was a comfort to me because of what I had experienced. It, it totally jived with my reality. As I, I grew in Christ, as I wanted more of Jesus, I was burdened for my loved ones. I wanted them to know these same truths. I'd see them proclaim Christ and then live as unfaithful servants. I, as I pursued them, as I brought up conversations about being concerned for this grandparent's salvation, conflict ensued. The more I was growing as a Christian, the more I had clarity as what it meant to live as a disciple, the more my family dismissed my thoughts as extreme or radical. Being prepared, living for Christ, will cause division. The life of a faithful servant is a life with the master in first place. This will look so weird to the world. We should love our family. We should be good stewards over these relationships that we've been given. We should show them the sacrificial love of Christ and be generous with the gospel. But ultimately, our allegiance lies with Christ. It's been said there's no neutrality. You're either with him or you're against him. You're not for him, you're against him. And if you stay against him, you will be against him, and he will be against you forever. It's 
at these point, this point that Jesus turns from the disciples and he speaks to the crowds about how we should be aware and know the times in which we live. And he gives them warnings of the ways in which they're unprepared. He says to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? All of these are are weather trends that experienced sailors and farmers would be able to predict weather patterns from. Growing up, my dad would say, red sky at night, sailors delight. Meaning that if the sky was red in the morning, the weather would be good. The second part of the saying went, red sky at morn, sailors take warn. Essentially, Jesus is saying here, you are able to predict the weather. You know what is coming, and yet you do not know how to interpret the present time. Israel, you hypocrites, you know what tomorrow's forecast is, but you can't see that I am the one that all the scriptures point to. I am the prophesied Messiah. It should be obvious to anyone who is paying attention. This guy redeeming the sight of the blind, raising the dead. <laughs> it should be easier to see that fulfillment has come in Jesus than it is to read the weather. They do not see what is plain because they do not want to see it. This is why Jesus calls them hypocrites. As dividing lines are drawn in our world, as they're, they're drawn in our culture, as, as persecution comes upon his church, we must be ever present. We must be aware always of the times in which we live. We must be faithful to know the master is coming back. In their case, what's so sad, the Messiah was right in front of them and they missed it. How many of us today sitting in church pews are in danger of missing the reason for living? How many people today are deceived, bearing the name of Christian, and yet they do not know Christ? They do not treasure Christ. This grieves my heart. The crowds, they liked what Jesus offered. He was entertaining. Maybe they got some good community from following him. They did not see him as the master. They did not treasure him as their Lord. They lived for themselves, and they used Jesus to fulfill their desires. And when he got in the way of their desires, they killed him. We must know the times. We must be prepared. And the last exhortation in this section we see from Christ is to settle our accounts while we still can. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus here is warning the crowds to make things right while they still can. Not just to avoid conflicts among themselves, but to settle with their accuser before they're turned over to the punishment. For they will pay the very last penny, meaning the fullness of judgment will be poured out upon them. These crowds, they're, they're obviously guilty and they, they need to make things right with their ruler. Because once the sentence is handed down, there will be no reconciliation. 
They need to make things right. They need to repent while the opportunity remains. Many who do not believe in the gospel, many who who shrug Christianity off, they say, if I just had the right evidence or if, if God made it clear, they might be tempted to believe, but, but Jesus says something entirely different. He says it is clear. He is the master. He is coming back. We need to make things right before it's too late. The time was coming for Israel to recognize their king, and the time is coming for us. Don't put this off. Don't say, I'll deal with it another day. Without the provision of Christ, the fullness of justice is poured out. And we miss the mercy and grace. He's kind to warn them. He's kind to warn us in advance. He calls us to get right with our accuser while we can. Christian, let these realities stoke your hearts with evangelistic zeal. We get to be agents of reconciliation, pointing our friends, pointing our family to the only place where fulfillment is truly found. We get to help others escape these fiery judgments and find their way to the merciful embrace of their Savior, their loving Father. Pursue the relationships God has given you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, it'd be my joy. I would love to talk with you or any member here would love to talk to you about God. You can talk to God. You can plead with him for mercy. You can repent from your sin, trust in him, and you will see that it is his delight as a good father to give his children the kingdom. Don't wait until the last judgment to come to him. Beloved, we must be prepared. Our master, master will return when we do not expect. Let's be found faithful, not abusing his grace, not earning our way, but living for our master's will, resting in his perfect provision of the suffering servant who would give his life so that we can feast at his table. The fires of judgment are terrible, but his grace and mercy is more. As we close, I want us to think about what we're about to do this morning in taking the Lord's Supper. This is a small but imperfect picture of that supper which is to come. This is a taste of the great heavenly banquet where we will be with our Father forever. We look forward to what he has promised, the heavenly glories that await his children. We look back on the cross the precious blood that was poured out for our sake. We look inward, examining ourselves. Are we faithful servants? And we look around at this imperfect community of the redeemed, this family bought by his blood, purchased by his grace, who we get to live life with, that we get to care for one another and point each other to Christ. And as we take this supper, we remember Paul's warning to take this supper rightly. 1 Corinthians, that anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is not a meal of judgment. This is a celebration of the glories of Christ that we have. This Lord's Supper at Covenant Hope Church is open to baptized believers who are walking faithfully with Christ in repentance of all known sin 
who are reconciled with one another and who are members in good standing of this church or under the care of another church that preaches the same biblical gospel preached here. After I pray, you're going to hear the music play, and I invite you to come to bring the elements back to your seat, and we're going to share in this meal together this small picture of the feast that is to come. Let's pray.